This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. You don't put those inside of you, do you? This is a show about women. I mean, you do? Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly-veiled aspirational nightmare. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. (laughs) Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Women's War, a production of iHeartRadio. Jake and I are pretty experienced travelers, and we're both well used to dangerous places. But something about Kamishlo, the city where we spend the night of July 22nd, sets us on edge. The city itself is, if not exactly clean, not particularly dirty either. It is overcrowded, badly so, but orderly enough given all that. The graffiti on the walls is generally friendly and pro-social. There are the names of various shahids, martyrs who died fighting for Rojava, brightly colored recycling symbols, and cozy cartoon illustrations of women with AK-47s. But alone among the ruins of Rojava, Kamishlo is not entirely under the control of the SDF. The Syrian regime and its blood-soaked dictator Bashar al-Assad still run a few square blocks of the city, along with its military airport. The result of this is that, every so often, you turn a corner in Kamishlo and run face-to-face into a gigantic portrait of Bashar. The regime bits of town are walled off, protected by razor wire and surly-looking young male soldiers with Kalashnikovs. A few days before our arrival, an American tourist was kidnapped by regime soldiers here. The full story of this that comes out later is profoundly dumb. Sam Goodwin, age 30, was trying to visit every country in the world. The Syrian regime, of course, would not approve his visa, so he hired our friend Sangar to get him approval to cross the Iraqi border into Rojava. Once in Rojava, Sam planned to head to Kamishlo so he could step briefly into the regime-controlled side of town. Sangar told him that this was a terrible idea, and also told him that, if he was going to safely visit Kamishlo, he really needed a local Kurdish fixer to show him around there, too. It was easy to accidentally wind up in the wrong part of town, and thus get arrested by the regime. But Sam decided he knew best. He didn't have much money, so he decided he wouldn't have a fixer once he reached Rojava. This was safe enough until he got to Kamishlo, and he decided to execute his cunning plan. 
He checked into the Aja Hotel, two A's, which is where most foreigners stay, and then he hit the ground and scoped out a regime checkpoint. Sam's plan, it seems, was to hop across into regime territory and then run back over into Rojava very quickly. Only he wasn't quite as fast as he needed to be. And so, when Jake and I checked into the Aja Hotel on the night of July 22nd, Sam sat in a prison cell somewhere nearby in regime-controlled Syria. His fate at that moment was uncertain, although he's since been freed, and it lingered in our minds. Our nerves were not helped by the 10-minute speech Chabat and our hotel's manager gave us on which parts of town were actually safe to visit, and which parts of town would get us arrested like Sam. The key, they explained, was just to avoid wandering too close to the regime parts of town. Large chunks of the city, they assured us, were totally safe. It was just that Foreigners had a nasty tendency to fuck up in the unfamiliar environs. Now, neither Jake nor I wanted to spend a lot of time out on the street, given all the reasons I just laid out. But we were hungry, and so we ventured out for shawarma and for some beer, for me. We were about 10 feet from the door of our hotel when a technical, a flatbed truck with a giant gun melted in the bed, farted into view in a cloud of exhaust and wheels to stop just a few feet ahead of us, smack in the middle of an intersection. Two YPG men hopped out from the bed of the truck, AK-47s in hand. They took up positions on either side of the street and began searching vehicles and questioning people. They did not seem overly aggressive or frightened, but they did seem very serious, and the mood on the street turned icy and weird in a way that's hard to describe to people who haven't watched roving patrols of armed men search for suicide bombers. That is what the YPG were looking for that afternoon. Kamishlo is large, and it's chaotic enough that ISIS sleeper cells have had an easier time operating there than in most parts of Rojava. There had been suicide bombings earlier in the year. Jake and I gave the whole scene a wide berth as we walked past and on to our destination, a little hole-in-the-wall shawarma joint. We ate, and then we set out to find a beer store. We were maybe half a block into that mission when a young man on a motorcycle burned right past the airsats checkpoint and up to Jake and I. We both tensed up. I wouldn't say I've been close to a suicide bomb detonating, but I have been closer than I wanted to be. Jake and I never talked about this, but I kind of gathered from his reaction that he'd had a similar experience, and so we were both rather jumpy at this. But the kid just hopped off his bike and breezed past us into a shop. We relaxed, but we also decided it was probably a good idea to hightail it back to our hotel rooms. We did not go back out into Kamishlo alone again. We made it through the night, though, and we awoke the next morning to an even tenser mood. The commander of CENTCOM, United States Central Command, had just flown into Rojava's capital, Kobani, to meet with the leadership of the SDF, Rojava's military. Security was correspondingly tightened. Chabat and Alan picked Jake and I up that morning, and as soon as we got out on the road, the additional Asaish patrols were very obvious. That's not the only reason things felt tense, though. The reason that the head of CENTCOM had flown to Rojava was to discuss the so-called Turkish buffer zone. President Erdogan wanted the United States to force the SDF to withdraw from all of the areas immediately around Turkey's border. But a lot of northeast Syria is bordered by Turkey, including most of the defensive fortifications and tunnels that would give Rojava a hope of defending itself against NATO's second largest military. As we ate breakfast, the news dropped that an individual in Rojava had fired a small rocket into Turkey. No one was hurt, and the SDF arrested the culprit, but it did not seem to bode well for future peace. Moments later, scanning my phone, I came across another piece of breaking news. Iran had just announced its arrest of 17 people it called CIA operatives. 
I began to feel as if Jake and I might be standing on the edge of some yawning, terrible chasm. And so I elected to set down my phone. This proved to be a wise decision. My mood improved immensely as we got out of Kamishlo and on the road to our next destination. Today we were headed to a woman's cooperative farm, out in the countryside near a town called Terbespi. The farm is one of several co-ops, training up a new generation of female farmers. As Alon tore across the landscape, he began to play us one of his favorite songs, Destani Kobani. That means, long live Rojava. We are ready to die for you. The attacks of the enemy are in vain. Revolutionary men and women are defending the homeland without fear of barbaric dogs. You get the idea. It's pretty standard militant stuff, but there's a pretty sweet breakdown at the halfway point. Jake and I like it, and it gets us to thinking about our favorite Irish rebel songs. A lot of Jake's family came from Ireland, so he grew up listening to the stuff. I don't have any Irish blood at all, but for whatever reason, I fell in love with old IRA anthems when I was in high school. We decided to play one of them for Chabad, and there's no question among us as to which song it should be. Come on, ship like a come out and fight me like a man. Show your wife how you won medals down in Flanders. Uh, how the IRA made you run like Galloway from the green and lovely lanes of Kilishanga. This is Come Out Ye Black and Tans, a classic tune about a drunk Irish partisan taunting members of a British military unit, the notoriously violent Black and Tans. The defiance of the song appears to Chabad. She asks us if we've heard Chia Madani's cover of Bella Ciao. Jake has, but I haven't, and she plays it. In response, Jake and I put on another one of our favorite IRA songs. Go on home, British soldiers, go on home. Have you got no fucking homes out the road? For 800 years we fought you without fear. And we'll fight you for 800 more. Chabat likes that one. A lot. She spent most of her life with foreign soldiers occupying her homeland, or threatening to occupy it. Syrians from regime-controlled territory, Russians, Americans, Turks. Chabad identifies deeply with the sentiment expressed in this song, and she laughs a lot during it. If you stay, you'll never ever beat the IRA. We have to stop by the nearby Asaish, or military police, office to get more papers stamped and inspected. We drive into a walled complex of buildings with a large, friendly poster of Apo Abdullah Ajalon, the founder of Rojava, wearing his Cosby sweater and smiling. It's displayed prominently out front. The process takes a little while, and while we wait, Chabat starts a conversation with one of the cops in the office with us. She asks him a variant of the same question I've had her asking a number of the men. The gist of the question is, do you find working with women to be weird? Did you used to feel differently about their place in society? Is this strange at all for you? And this guy insists that it's never been an issue for him. Then he shoots back a question to Jake. Are women allowed to serve in frontline combat units in the British military? Jake tells him yes, but only recently, because for a long time, people thought women could not do those jobs. I tell him that things are more or less the same over in the United States. The Asaish man regards this as ridiculous. He tells us, our daughters, they defeated ISIS, so there is the proof. 
When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. I don't understand what the big fat ones are. You don't put those inside of you, do you? I mean, you do? Yes. This is a show about women. Okay, so I just reapply my lip gloss after eating a delicious lunch. We are headed back now to European Political Systems class at Baruch College. Woo! Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. That's it. That's actually the name of the show. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. It's like reality TV on the radio. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. And looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Everyone in our country has a voice. It's something that says not just where you come from, but who you are. Welcome to NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of podcasts and a celebration of the hosts in journalism who've always spoken truth to power. Our voices are as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, and stories should never be about us without us. Find NPR Black Stories, Black Truths on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. We get our permission to move on, and before long, we're rolling up the dirt road leading to the Women's Cooperative Farming Commune. It's a sizable endeavor, more than two dozen acres under cultivation, and a complex of a dozen greenhouses, each the size of two 18-wheelers parked next to each other. Alan stops the van, and we get out and meet a middle-aged man outside a pair of trailers that seem to function as an office space. He introduces himself as Haval Kenoir and explains that he's an agricultural engineer, and that he acts as an advisor to the young women who live and work here. He takes us into the trailers, and he leads us to a small classroom with YPG and J flags in one corner, and a desk with a computer and an AK-47 lint against it. Two young women sit in a low-slung couch at the other end of the room. They could have walked out of downtown Los Angeles. Both wore jeans, sneakers, and colorful t-shirts. Ahim and Salam are your names? Salam, it's peace. Ahim, it's like a wish. Ahim, it's like a wish. Ahim has dark glasses, a headscarf, and presents with an overwhelming air of shyness. Her partner, Salam, is her polar opposite, with a penetrating gaze and a wide, toothy, and thoroughly winsome smile. Both young women are the elected representatives of the commune, chosen by their fellows to represent the group at local council meetings and in the instances when foreign journalists roll through town. They both look very young to be taking on leadership roles in an endeavor as large as this farm. When we arrived, there were enough crops on the ground to fill a couple of large trucks. My first question for Ahim and Salam is if, before the revolution, they'd ever thought they might end up leading a project like this. Chabad asks them for me. 
<laughs> that tutting noise was Salam saying no in a way that translated very clearly to everyone in the room, even if it didn't quite translate over my recording. <laughs> no, we never thought the world could be like this. I asked her when she first realized that the world had changed and that women in her society suddenly had more options. The memory was clear to her. She was sitting with a group of friends shortly after the start of the revolution, and as they began to talk about the changes happening to their society, an avalanche of buried desires began to bubble up from within them. We were young and we wanted to study. One of us said, I want to be a doctor, and I said, I want to study economics. Salam and her friends went to the women's house that had been newly established in their town. When this place was set up, our neighbors and other people in the community talked about it. Salam came from a fairly traditional Arab village, and it was not the norm for women in her family to have careers or to even really live independently before marriage. I asked her if her family made things more difficult for her when she announced that she wanted to do this work. <laughs> <laughs> The sound she made wasn't picked up perfectly by my little handheld audio recorder. I will try to recreate it as best as I can on my own. The sound only conveys half of her message. The other half was on her wide open eyes and cheerfully traumatized grin. It's the kind of look you see on your friends' faces when they recall the times their parents caught them out drinking underage or sneaking out to visit a boyfriend or a girlfriend or doing something else that caused their parents to blow up in a huge way. Announcing that she planned to leave home was clearly not a pleasant memory, but her family weren't able to make her stop either. Perhaps it's true that our work was men's work before, but now it is women's work. We said, yes, we will work like the men, and we put in long hours here to do so. After a period of study, Salam decided that her interest in economics would be best served by helping to start and operate a business. Her training for this involved classroom lessons and practical training in agriculture, but it also included the same month of ideological and armed training required of new recruits who joined the militias of the SDF. We had classes about ancient history, starting with the Big Bang, classes on Abdullah Ajlan, on ethics, on how we should relate to others in our community, we had many classes, including education on economics. They also learned how to use a gun. Basic arm training is considered a critical skill for just about everybody who takes any sort of real role in Rojava. Did she remember what she thought the first time that she, uh, first time that she fired a weapon? It was scary. Up until the first bullet I fired, my hand was shaking and the comrade had to help me. But the second time, I fired it. I also asked what was probably a more important question. How had it felt the first time she was able to eat crops that she'd helped to grow herself? It was hard work, but we enjoyed it. When the crops were finally ready, the cucumbers finished first. We liked them a lot. The harvest was difficult, but after we had everything gathered, we were so happy. Now you can see our fields here. They are so big, and it took a lot of effort to make them this way. Days spent under the sun, irritated by the heat. But once we had that food in our hands, we forgot our discomfort. After we conclude our interview, Salam and Ahim take us on a tour of their farm. We pass a man cutting up metal segments of fencing while a female apprentice observes. We pass a fertile field filled with row after row of cucumbers, cantaloupes, and zucchini. I'm not an expert on agriculture, but I've spent a decent chunk of my life on small farms in Texas, Oklahoma, California, and Oregon. It is clear to me that this is not a tiny token endeavor. There is an enormous amount of food on the ground. A lot of thick, flavorful cucumbers with an almost meaty richness to them that's entirely absent from the ones I buy back in the United States. We eat them while we walk. 
The pastoral charm of the field is broken by the enormous oil refinery that dominates the horizon in the distance. Rojava holds a number of very rich oil fields, which provide a significant amount of serious total oil output. The refinery ahead of us doubles as a base for U.S. troops in the region. Oil production definitely does not gel well with the ecology balance bits of the Rojavan constitution. But selling it represents a pragmatic necessity. There are taxes in Rojava, but this is not a wealthy region of the world. War is expensive. Without oil sales, the SDF's position would be even less secure. A great deal has been written about the oil refineries of northeast Syria. A few months before my own arrival in Rojava, a reporter with Mother Jones named Shane Bauer published a massive long-form article about his own experiences in the region. Rojava's oil refineries and the role the U.S. played in securing them were a major focus of his story. Bauer was critical of the Rojavan project, and he spends relatively little time discussing economic cooperatives like the Farm Moron. He writes of them, quote, These profit-sharing ventures are subsidized with interest-free loans, but their role in the economy is relatively marginal. There are just 129 cooperatives in Jazeera, which is one of the cantons in Rojava. Their goods are bought and sold on the free market. The question of whether or not these cooperatives really matter in the big picture is a debatable point, to be sure. But it's worth noting that none of those 129 cooperatives existed prior to the revolution, and there are more cooperatives in the other cantons of Rojava. Fifty-five of these co-ops are all women endeavors, like the restaurant we ate at in Darik and Salam and Ahim's farm. These employ more than 7,000 women. It feels significant to me that something of this scale has been accomplished while the people of Rojava have also fought an expensive grinding war with ISIS. And it feels significant to me when we step into the large complex of greenhouses on Salam and Ahim's farm. Yeah, a lot going on here. You see, on one end of the very large greenhouse space, there's no internal walls between them. A group of six women, uh, all masked, cutting down plants. Watching these young women chop down old vines, remnants of the last harvest, to clear up space for replanting pulls my mind back to California and the medical marijuana farms that I spent a sizable chunk of the late aughts living in and around. Perhaps Shane is right, and everything happening here is an insignificant sideshow. But it doesn't feel that way, standing in the middle of it. We eat a cantaloupe before we leave. Like most right-thinking people, I've spent most of my life considering cantaloupe to be among the very worst fruits. I find it dull and flavorless, and I've always sort of assumed that its main purpose was to be an inexpensive way to fill out the weight of cafeteria fruit salad. I don't know if it's something in the soil, or just the fact that I've never had a farm-fresh cantaloupe before, but it tastes incredible here, so much sweeter than I'd expected. Bellies full, we bid our hosts farewell, and we drive to Tirbespi, a large town of about 16,000. I want to get a sense of how men on the street feel about the changes to women's rights here since the revolution. We haven't heard from many men who are just normal civilians, not involved in any of the militias or political parties that make up Rojava. One allegation you'll hear from people who are critical of Rojava is the idea that the main political party in the region, the PYD, has basically dressed up their authoritarian rule as a democratic revolution. The PYD, or Democratic Union Party, was founded in 2003. Shane Bauer of Mother Jones brings up the case of Berzan Liani, a Kurdish journalist who was imprisoned for six months in 2017 under charges of being part of an unapproved media organization. 45 days of a sentence were held in solitary confinement. Liani is affiliated with the Kurdistan Democratic Party of Syria, or KDPS, a political party that many Syrian Kurds say is just a wing of the Barzani family's empire of influence. Since the KDPS is a party for Kurds, and for Kurds alone, it is legal in Rojava. 
Under the Constitution, political parties may not be founded on ethnic or religious lines. The self-administration basically accuses Liani of being a spy in Rojava, there to drum up unrest and resistance. Liani denies this, and neither I nor Shane Bauer have any way of knowing what the truth here is. The best I can do, with the resources available to me now, is to try and gain an understanding of how free people in Rojava feel to express their feelings towards the PYD and the self-administration. We park on a random street, and Chabad approaches the first passerby we meet, a short, middle-aged Arab man on his way to the market. We say our greetings, and then I start in. What do you think about the changes that have been made since the revolution? His answer to the second question is a bit more winding, but it's also broadly positive. So yeah, he said on the regime's days there was just a woman who are educated, are functioning in the jobs and different as, as well the women, the men that uh, they were like just have education for people like me, elevated, they didn't work, they were just always uh, farmers. That might have been a little hard to follow. This guy was saying that back when Assad was in charge, only wealthy, educated women were able to hold any kind of job. There have always been liberated working women in Syria, but until the revolution, they were primarily wealthy, generally from coastal cities and generally benefiting from some sort of direct connection to the Assad regime. This guy expressed his opinion that now working class women had opportunities, and he felt this was a good thing. We approach another passerby, a reedy young man who expresses a more critical opinion of the self-administration. He praises the security, but he complains that some of the dishonest, corrupt officials who ran things under Assad were still around and were still dishonest. But the people who already before the revolution have problems with their uh, like attitude or corruption, already they, they, they continue in that. Chabat asks him next how he feels about, you know, the fact that women can do stuff here now. Now the women are the, the top authority here. None of us, <laughs> none of us uh, dare to, 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 to talk uh, badly to his wife. We'll hear variations of this joke several times today, and many times throughout our time in Rojava. As you can hear, Jake and I both laughed when we heard it the first time, but it grew a little bit less funny every time someone repeated it. I couldn't help but think that some of the men back at home in my own country who complain about the feminist movement oppressing American men. This feels much less aggressive than the men's rights movement, for instance, but it's certainly not all lighthearted jokes either. Many men in Rojava feel that what you and I would call legal equality is in reality women being placed over men. It's not exactly a new story in the history of civil rights movements. After a handful of interviews, we find ourselves talking to a tall, heavyset man in a thobe, the traditional Arab dressing gown. Chabat asks him how he feels about the changes to women's rights after the revolution. There have been great successes. Next, she asks him, before, a woman could not pick up a gun or go to work. How do you feel about the fact that this has changed? I think it's very good that now women can take up the gun. Before, women lived under violence. Now, after the revolution, they have had chances. They have had their freedom. Before, they weren't free. They couldn't speak. Now, they can work. They can speak. There is an improvement. Next, she asks him if he feels the self-administration government has treated his people, Arabs, any differently than Kurds. No, there's no difference. We are all one. It doesn't matter here if you're Arab, Kurdish, Christian. We are all brothers. In this revolution, we rose up together as one. We continue down the street, talking to Arab and Kurdish men of all ages about their feelings towards the new system. 
Most people are broadly positive, particularly about the security situation, but also generally about the new opportunities for women. After an hour or so, we find ourselves in a vegetable market, talking to the owner of a small shop. He's the first man we think who is emphatically against the changes made by the Rojavan revolution. Okay, so he is not with this system of the woman. He feel like it's too much or it's over. Why? Because he already have one wife and he wanted to get a second wife, but he's afraid. Do you know it's in our law that it's not allowed to get a second wife? I'm not particularly sympathetic to this fellow's complaints, but I am happy that he felt perfectly comfortable voicing them at length to foreign journalists. Zaroka. Because he don't have a children from the first one, so he have a reason for the second wife, but even that he's... I certainly can't say that the members of the PYD, Rojava's largest political party, or any other officials involved in its governance have never targeted or oppressed individuals with political differences. That statement would not even be true of my own country. But I can say that this man on the street, talking to a foreigner with a clear invisible recording device, felt fine voicing his criticisms of the system. And that same thing would not have happened in Bashar al-Assad, Syria, at the very least. I don't understand what the big fat ones are. You don't put those inside of you, do you? I mean, you do? This is a show about women. Okay, so I just reapply my lip gloss after eating a delicious lunch. We are headed back now to European political systems class at Baruch College. Woo! Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly-veiled aspirational nightmare. That's it. That's actually the name of the show. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. It's like reality TV on the radio. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. (laughs) Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Everyone in our country has a voice. It's something that says not just where you come from, but who you are. Welcome to NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of podcasts and a celebration of the hosts in journalism who've always spoken truth to power. Our voices are as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience. And stories should never be about us without us. Find NPR Black Stories, Black Truths on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Beauty Translated Season 3 is coming soon with what? A second host? I'm Carmen Laurent, and this season I am joined full-time by world-renowned Janie Danger. Janie, what are we talking about in season three? We're talking about life, Carmen. Beauty Translated is about the many fragmented lives spreading across this rich tapestry of the trans experience. Janie, this sounds like an all-new format. Podcasting 2 is finally here. Thoughtful perspectives on current events. Stunning, sexy, bold interviews with an all-star lineup of guests and the all-new beauty translated love line the first ever be a part of the beauty translated transcendental podcasting experience by calling our helpline at 678-561-2785 
for any problem you may have, we will do our best to make it worse. Listen to Beauty Translated Season 3 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bye. Bye. We finish our time on the street, and after a couple of terrible, terrible cigarettes with Alon, which we enjoyed very much, thank you, Alon, Zorspas, we hop in the van and roll off, back to Kamishlo. Chabat and I start talking about her feelings towards the interview. Um, how did you feel about the, uh, the running joke about the women being in charge of everything now? Yeah, I accept it. I even sometimes expect like a more harsh comments, you know. I know deeply they are, many of them don't like it at all. They don't believe it at all. They, and even sometimes I feel like if it came again, their control or, or the, if this system have been gone, the woman will be like the first loser in this because maybe they will going to take revenge again. Yeah, which of those guys, like some of them were clearly, like the guy in the vegetable cart seemed to be having a laugh about it. Do you feel some of them were, or maybe he was not fully joking? Yeah. Yeah. Because the other one, when he said, like, it's wrong system and, uh, like, I want to, because he wanted to just get another wife because of the kids. He have a reason why he's criticizing this system. But the other one, he's clearly, like, uh, don't like it at all. And he's, like, even make fun on it. Like, yeah, they will going to take us to a hole somehow. Al hole is the open-air prison slash refugee camp where ISIS prisoners are held. Interesting. Yeah, because this is the first time in their life, like, never they imagine. They have been raised up like the woman, she's it's, and basically in Arab culture, that the woman, she cannot do anything. She's yeah. just a housewife, maximum for home and khalas. So now it's uh, another thing, and it's so difficult for them to accept it. Even they see it by their eyes. They feel like it will be changed. She means they all hope it will go back to the way it was before, and perhaps it will. As we drive past yet another towering stretch of the Turkish border fence, I can't help but think about how suddenly this could all end. Our last stop for the day is a residential neighborhood in Chabat's hometown, Kamishlo. We're going there to meet the members of one of the local women's councils. This council represented the women in the neighborhood and met regularly with them to vote on how to handle specific hyper-local problems. Since all of the women in it were older and grandmothers, Chabat referred to them collectively as the mamas. And introducing us to them was clearly the most excited she'd been in the three or four days since I'd known her. So what they are doing, they are like organizing, they cannot read or write. Each one of them, they have a smartphones. What they are doing, they just send or share voice messages together in order to organize for a meeting or, or a gathering or, you know, they are discussing the cases or issues together. So you, you see each one of them, she is handling a cooking in one hand, another hand, listening at him, you know, children just running around like, yeah, you have another message. And she's just like, show me. Okay, tell her this or that. So it's so funny when you saw Alan glided his van to a stop in front of a nondescript tan-colored building at the end of a working-class neighborhood in Kamishlo. We headed in through the open gate of a courtyard, and inside we met the mamas. There are six of them, and the youngest looks to be in her late 40s or early 50s. They all wear headscarves and dress traditionally. No exposed tattoos here. A gaggle of young kids scamper around, doing kid things. There are no oppo pictures on the walls, nor any hanging pictures of martyrs. A circle of plastic chairs sits out in the courtyard, and we all take a seat, with Chabat in between Jake and I to facilitate the interviews. She introduces the co-presidents of the Women's Council, one of whom is also the co-president of the larger local commune. And it's here that I should probably give you another brief overview of how Rojava's democratic confederalist system works on the ground level. 
Every neighborhood, which is in this case about 180 households, has a local commune made up of all the adult members of that neighborhood. They elect co-presidents, which represent that commune and the People's Council for their district. And the People's Council elects co-presidents to represent that district at the City Council and, you know, so on. Co-presidents are elected by simple democratic vote, and they are recallable through the same mechanism. The higher-level councils are responsible for the kind of coordination necessary for handling life in large urban areas. But the root of all governance in Rojava are the local communes. They're responsible for hyper-local maintenance tasks, basic security, and the distribution of many social welfare programs. They also act a little bit like a DMV, supplying people with stamps and papers they need to do official stuff. The women's councils run as auxiliaries to the local communes, as well as to the larger people's councils. They have veto power over every women's issue decided in the area, and can thus stop the mixed-gender local communes from ruling on issues of domestic violence or women's health care should they disagree with a ruling. All these different communes and councils are further broken down into committees, which handle specific issues for their community. The mamas we're meeting with today are the social committee for the women's council of one local commune in Kamishlo. And as they explained to me, their job is to act as a sort of emotional police force. The Asaish, the military police, don't show up to deal with domestic violence or a fistfight between neighbors. The belief is that getting the police involved is bringing outsiders in to solve what should be a community issue. So instead, when problems like that crop up, the first responders are often the mamas. As we sit and talk, the mamas tell us the story of a recent domestic dispute they had to handle. They went to fix the problem between a couple. Uh, the wife, she is uh, in her parents' home uh, since a month because they, it looked like the husband was beating her, you know. So they went there and they wanted to, to solve this problem and then they listened to the wife. Uh, then she interfered and she said, no, it's unfair. Maybe the wife, she is not saying the genuine claim. Let's listen to the other side as well because she said, like, now also sometimes the women, they are oppressing the others. So... <laughs> In short, what they initially thought was a simple case of domestic violence turned out to be a more complicated dispute between a married couple. The mamas grew concerned that the woman in this case may have been distorting or fabricating some of the claims she was making against her husband. Unfortunately, like the woman for years have been oppressed and there is sometimes the attitude of revenge. So let's not, uh, you know, we get power, so try because the woman also alerted and they have, they don't know how to handle all this power, whatever. So sometimes the woman also, they are not always right. The conclusion the mamas came to was that both parties had valid reasons to be angry. They talked things out with both, and they helped them reach a place where they could apologize to each other and move back in together. This would be an example of a fairly light case for the social council. But they also dealt with more severe issues than quarreling spouses. Issues like the fallout after a murder. Uh, Ten days ago, uh, there is a case, like a a murder case, since four years. uh, It's there, but uh, uh, no one can solve it. Now I can hear the true crime fans in the audience getting excited, but interestingly enough, when Chabat said the murder was unsolved, she didn't mean that the killer was unknown. In fact, the murder had been caught very quickly, tried, convicted, and imprisoned shortly after the crime itself. What hadn't been solved was how to reintegrate the families of the victim and the murderer back into civil society. It's uncle, he killed his nephew. So his wife have been uh, the, the mother of this uh, son and his she said that the immediate family of the dead boy refused to accept peace. We were going to kill that guy, okay? Uh, anyhow, they kept the children and they kicked this woman, <coughs> also his wife, out. 
And whenever the woman or the other, other, anyone wanted to, to try to fix this problem, they said, no, we're going to kill him. Revenge killing is an extremely common problem in many parts of the Middle East. The specifics differ from region to region, but the basic idea is that it's still pretty normal for members of families and tribes to revenge murder in response to the death of a loved one. I found an interview with a young Egyptian man, Joseph Nazir, on a website called connectthecultures.com. He described how revenge killings can often turn into all-out war between families. Quote, when I was a child, five or six years old, there was a war like this between two families in our street. My little sister and I were inside our home with our mom when it started. My dad wasn't there. He was working. There was a fight going on outside our door. Families were shooting at each other. I was sitting with my mom inside the house, scared. There were a lot of guns. The shooting went on for about an hour or two. One person died in this gunfight, and, per local custom, his family were unable to hold a proper funeral until one of them had killed a member of the other family, and that family would be unable to do their funeral until they'd committed another murder, and so on and so forth. You get the idea. And as Joseph explained in his article, there's only one way to end a such a cycle of violence. Quote, Revenge killings can go on for a long, long time, decades and decades. It doesn't stop until someone in one of the families wants to stop and agrees to go through a ceremony to officially halt the killings. This is the only thing that can stop it. Other than that, it will never stop at all. Now, the ceremony Joseph refers to involves one man from one of the families marching over to the home of the enemy family, lying down in front of the man of the house and saying some variant of, I'm dead, I'm yours, you can do whatever you want with me. Now, the man who does this is generally never killed, but it is considered deeply shameful for him to take this action. And so, in other words, the cycle of violence can't end, traditionally, unless a young man is willing to sacrifice his pride and honor to stop the bloodletting. They've taken the responsibility out of the hands of individual family members and put it into the hands of other members of the community. In this particular case, it took weeks of work by members of the social committee and members of several other communes in the city. Eventually, they got both families to agree to the terms by which they would make peace. The next step was to host a gigantic feast, attended by members of the community and by both families. There they would publicly make peace. That way, if one side or the other broke the truce, all of the neighbors would know which family was going back on their word of honor. Now, convincing both sides to reach a place of agreement was not easy. The Mamas told us of another story about a murder committed by several members of the YPG against one of their comrades. Uh, look like two fighters in the YPG. So it looks like one of them uh, have been in love with, uh, with uh, the other sister, okay? So he proposed her. Even he proposed her, he was the other guy, her brother, who was super angry with him because she, he is in love with his sister. So what he done, he, he, he and another three uh, of his friends, they took him and they killed him. Now, I feel like I should also jut in here to say that if the self-administration were secretly authoritarian, they probably wouldn't let foreign journalists hear about murders within their own military units. What happened, the families of those four youngs, they fled because of the revenge, you know? They get afraid of this family to get revenge. So the YPG caught and prosecuted the murderers, but the families of those murderers had to flee their homes because they were terrified they'd be murdered in retaliation. This is the point at which the mama stepped in. So the solution it was that uh, the guy he is already the killer he is in this in, the, in this jail in the prison, mm -hmm. and uh, they get to this solution that the families four families they will gonna return back to their to their houses, but three of them they already announced that they 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 don't consider these sons they are sons anymore. Chabad is explaining that the social councils were able to convince the families of the killers to disown their sons. This placated the family of the victim and allowed everyone to return to their homes without further bloodshed. The mamas were pretty emphatic that they could not solve every problem that came their way. For one thing, 
None of them could read, and they freely admitted that some issues exceeded their depth. These problems could be escalated, up to the educated ladies at the women's house, or up to the professional courts in the very most extreme cases. People in Rojava still have the option of dealing with certain problems in what we Americans would call the normal way, with cops and judges and lawyers. But they prefer not to start there, with any of these groups or steps. One of the foundational ideas of democratic confederalism is that the folks who live in an area are generally better at managing their lives than the people outside it. Bringing a bunch of cops from 15 miles away into a domestic dispute is often a lot less effective than having a group of older women everyone knows and respects roll in to investigate and talk things out. Like just about everyone else we speak with, the mamas have also trained in using their AK-47s. During times of heightened tension, they take direct responsibility for the security of their neighborhoods. And they take this work seriously. It's not hard to see why. The co-president of the commune tells me about her son, who died in an ambush conducted by ISIS during the darkest days of the war, when the SDF was losing 40 fighters every day. She places a music video made in tribute to her martyred boy. The pride is obvious in her eyes. She explains to us that her work on the social council and in her local commune is part of how she honors her child's sacrifice. The more we talk, it becomes clear that all these women have lost children and other family members battling against ISIS. And rather than yielding to their rage and pain, they decided to throw their lives into building something. At one point I ask if she can imagine things going back to the way they were before the revolution. She immediately tells me that such a thing is unimaginable. as we leave, the co-president hands me a little plastic token with the face of her martyred boy on it. For the first time in my life, I'm glad I can't speak fluent Kurdish. It's much easier to just thank her, take her hand, and meet her gaze without another word. As we pile into the van, Chabat points out the little plastic memorial in my hand. She tells me, you can see where they get the morale to keep going. If they stop, then they're just grieving. We drive off, and Jake and I burn down another god-awful cigarette with Alan while we mull over the day's findings. It's late, and the sun is beginning to set, but we're not quite done yet. Chabat has one last stop for us to make. Our prior stops on this trip had all been places and groups Jake and I told Chabat we wanted to visit. We'd read about women's cooperatives and local councils and Judge Amina and Genoir before we ever arrived. We informed Chabat where we wanted to go and who we wanted to meet, and she worked out the logistics and got the permissions. But this last stop of the day was the first destination that Chabat had picked herself, for us. The Cemetery of the Martyrs in Kamishlo is one of the places where Rojava buries its war dead, the Shahids. From the outside, it's a large stone facility, with a gathering field to one side and long rows of orderly graves on the other. As we step through the gates, following Chabad, I turn on my recorder to capture the moment. We're walking into a cemetery. It's around sunset. The Muezzin's playing. This is uh, where the graves of the Shahids are held. 
I see marker after marker. They're colorful with uh, kind of traditional gravestones on the top, written in both English and kind of Arabic characters. On the bottom there are pictures, yellow backgrounds, faces, and color of different shahids. Most of them are very young, in their 20s, some in their teens, some older people, men and women, young women who look like they should be in high school, and middle-aged women, mothers, probably. They're brightly colored pictures surrounding it. Essentially looks like uh, like a gravestone on top of a like marble box, and the sides of the box are covered in sort of colored picture inserts of the person. There's a picture I'm looking at right now of a, a martyr named Baran. There's three pictures of him on the front, one of him holding a puppy dog, one of him gesturing with an AK by his side, another of him smiling. He was born in 1995 and died in 2014. I'm looking at Shahid Zana next. Oh, it's Habat's brother. Zana Abbas was born in 1998. He died in 2014, fighting ISIS. Habat puts a hand on the picture of his face, frozen forever as a teenager. She kneels down and kisses her brother's grave. We walk in silence for a while, giving Habat space for her grief and doing our best to take in the feel of this place for ourselves. We reconvene as the sun falls down past the horizon line. Chabat tells us that it's not uncommon for the parents of martyrs to spend hours at a time here, reading or speaking to their deceased loved ones. I don't know, you cannot express this, you know. There is a man I showed, like elderly man, how he is reading Quran to his uh, son. Some mamas, they just say, like, you know, speaking to them as, you know, for hours. Sometimes you came and you see randomly mamas or relatives, they are around and they speak in for a little while, we just walk through the rows of graves, together and mostly silent. As we walk, I notice something written on one of the walls of the cemetery in Kurdish. I ask Chabat what it means. What does Shahid mean? So the Shahids are our symbolic leaders. And that's a quote. She explains that the Shahids hold a particularly sacred place in people's hearts here. They are the only people in Rojavan society who are considered to be beyond criticism. They sacrifice their own futures to provide one for their neighbors. In this way, they are seen as leaders, opening the door to a new world that the people they've left behind now find themselves challenged to step through. Thank you for taking us here. For me, to be honest, whenever I'm working with any team, 
even if they don't ask or whatever for me it's a duty to bring them to him because for me the story it will not be completed without this part yeah the story of Rojava it's here The Women's War is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. You don't put those inside of you, do you? This is a show about women. I mean, you do? Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly-veiled aspirational nightmare. It's not hosted, not narrated, we're just dropping into a woman's world. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. (laughs) Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Everyone in our country has a voice. It's something that says not just where you come from, but who you are. Welcome to NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of podcasts and a celebration of the hosts in journalism who've always spoken truth to power. Our voices are as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, and stories should never be about us without us. Find NPR Black Stories, Black Truths on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.